0: This morning, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and in a moment, we will look at verses 16 through 24. First of all, I trust you have prepared your hearts for worship this morning, as I've already said It's not by accident that you are here. And I find that behind the mysterious exercises of God's mercy as our sovereign king is a steadfast determination to display his glory in the lives of his children, a glory that will one day fill the earth. And the method that he uses is to send his emissaries to remind you through the foolishness of preaching that indeed our God reigns, he continues to reign and then he invites us to worship him by ravishing our affections with irresistible morsels of truth that come from the word of God, as well as undeniable displays of his glory in ways that are too numerous to even mention. So I trust The ears and eyes of your heart are prepared to welcome and worship the Lord here this morning. Let me give you a bit of context before we look at the text before us as we continue to make our way through Matthew verse by verse. Jesus has just defended the life and ministry of John the Baptist to the multitudes that are standing before him. He has reshaped their misguided and selfish perspective of the kingdom of God, helping them to realize that the kingdom of God is more than just a glorious takeover by the Messiah, where religious hypocrites just stand around and wait to be blessed. But rather, he has helped them to understand that, according to verse 12, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. That is, the kingdom of heaven is pressing forward vigorously, violently, relentlessly, and only men of force, men of violence, men of determination, men of courage will press their way into it. And indeed, the narrow gate of salvation is only entered by those who press through it with a holy violence, with a desperation to be saved, one must squeeze through the restrictive gate of self-denial and in, in, then in great agony of soul renounce their former self and beg the Lord to forgive them of their sins. And Jesus says in John six thirty seven, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And so therein is the wonderful grace and mercy of Jesus. But now we find the multitude standing before their Messiah, I think, maybe, they're not really sure. Clearly, they know that that is what John the Baptist had told them, but now John is in prison and Jesus has just defended his character and his ministry. And the multitude standing before him now have just witnessed yet another flurry of miracles in response to John the Baptist's disciples who had asked on his behalf in verse 3 of chapter 11, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? So they had seen all of this, but still they were not taking him seriously. And Jesus knew that. Like many people today, they don't really believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And, of course, people all have the reasons for rejecting Christ. Some justification for their rejection, some excuse, some well-chiseled argument that they are convinced provides irrefutable evidence that appeases their own conscience and vindicates any lingering guilt as a result of their rejection. And then, of course, there are others who refuse to believe or even to give consideration as to who Jesus was or is, because frankly, they're just too busy to even think about it. Their life is full of other things that are more important. There is a spiritual indifference, if you will. And many people that stood before Jesus were thinking the same things that many do today. And in their hearts, they're saying, well, you know, maybe if I just really don't think about all this, it'll just kind of go away. After all, I've got more pressing issues in my life right now. Well, it's fascinating as we look at this very practical text before us, we see Jesus with his typical disregard for being seeker-sensitive. He exposes the whole range of deceptions within the minds and the hearts of the multitudes that stood before him. He unmasks their flimsy excuses for unbelief, and he even warns them of the judgment that will someday befall them. And he really does this by looking at three primary tactics, primary strategies that many people will use to justify their unbelief. First of all, as you will see, And I'll give the three to you and then we will dissect them. First of all, they were guilty of childish criticism. Secondly, they were committed to character assassination. And thirdly, their lives were characterized with granite indifference. With that introduction, let's look at the text. Matthew 11 Beginning in verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation, Jesus says? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. First of all, he accuses the multitudes of childish criticism. Notice verse 16. But what shall I compare this generation? He says, this was a common rabbinical way of Making a case against someone. In other words, he says, To what should I compare you people? And they were mostly Jews. You've witnessed all of these miracles, all these signs and wonders, yet you still refuse to repent and embrace me as your Messiah in humble faith. He says that this generation is like children sitting in the marketplaces. Who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. This is a curious analogy, is it not? Where the Lord compares them to children. Perhaps a little context and history will help you understand what he's saying. Evidently, it was common in that day for children when they came to the marketplace with their parents to play with other children. We see that even in our malls today, there's certain areas where the children can come and play. And while the parents shopped or or even tended their stores, their booths that they would have or socialize, as they typically did, the children would play. And one of their favorite games, actually two of their favorite games, was to play either wedding or to play funeral, because these were two big social events that occurred often in their society and their culture. And so what he's saying here is that you're like these children. Well, the children would come along and say, Hey, I know, let's play wedding. I'll be the bride, and, and John, you be the groom, and all of a sudden that's interrupted with the whiners and the complainers that say, No, 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 I don't want to play wedding, that's stupid. Okay, let's play funeral. After all, funerals were a fascinating thing. They would pay mourners, and people would come in and wail, and, and people would play musical instruments, and it was, it was, it was quite a lot of theater. So the child, some of the children say, "Okay, well, if you don't want to play wedding, then let's play funeral. Now, that's stupid. I don't want to play funeral either. And the point is simply this. Unbelievers many many times are like selfish children that cannot be pleased. Never satisfied. Always complaining. Unhappy. Quarrelsome. Fickle. Always whining about something. Utterly self-absorbed. Life is all about me. So the analogy that he uses, then he goes on to say, John, the Baptist comes to you heralding the king. He's talking now about John, the Baptist, and he says, repent. We know from earlier passages, John, the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But your reaction to John, the Baptist was one of rejection. Yeah, you know, I see all the miracles. Ah, big deal. Again, kind of like children. Big deal. You know, I, I'm, I'm still hungry. The Romans are still in charge. I, I don't know if I want to buy into this thing that John's preaching. After all, I've got my own religion. I've got my own traditions. I, I, I feel pretty good about myself. I, I don't want to play that little game, this new one that's come along here. You know, we have the same type of mentality today where you try to share the gospel with someone and they basically say, hey, hey, leave me alone with your Christianity. I remember not too long ago I was talking with, uh, with a person about some issues in, in his life. And, and when I began to introduce the gospel, I remember he said very quickly, no, 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 wait, wait a minute. You know, I'm sorry. I'm just not into that stuff. I'm just not into that stuff. And as the multitudes there before Jesus, that man, as long with many other people, would be thinking in their hearts, you know, I've got my own beliefs. And frankly, I think your ideas are silly, just like little children. And it's tragic. Many unbelievers today are like spoiled little children. Nothing makes them happy. There's never enough football games to go to, never enough beer to drink, never enough television programs to watch. Nothing makes them happy but you cannot appeal to logic with them. You cannot appeal to reason. And so Jesus applies this illustration first to the reaction to John the Baptist, verse 18. For John came neither eating and drinking nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. This exposes, by the way, the second tactic of unbelief, if you will. That of character assassination. We're used to hearing that, especially if you listen to anything on the news today with all the politics where everybody's trying to tear down one another's character. And the point with that Jesus is making here is, you know, John comes to you as a man clearly separated from the world. A man separated unto God, a prophet. You haven't had a prophet in 400 years. It's obvious that he has taken the Nazarite vow. He is the fulfillment of, of Malachi 3.1. He is the herald of the Messiah King. He is announcing to you the inexpressibly good news of, of the long-awaited kingdom that has come. <laughs> but you didn't like the price of the kingdom, that of repentance. His message was too offensive. He wasn't telling you what you wanted to hear. Instead, he told you the truth so you hate him and you say, he's got a demon. The ad hominem arguments, are you familiar with that phrase? If you can't win based on the strength of your own evidence and your own argument, you just tell a person, well, you're stupid and ugly. You know, that's kind of the mentality here. You know, any preacher who is unashamed of the gospel and speaks the truth will inevitably have his character assassinated (laughs) I always laugh somebody will say as somebody did the other day out at the gun club say oh yeah I I I know Dave Harrell and when when they say that I and I was kind of hearing it on the side and then they came and introduced me but I always think yeah I wonder which line you're in the long one or the short one you know and Paul told us in first Corinthians 4 that Messengers of the gospel are without honor. They're going to be slandered. They are the scum of the world, the dregs of all things and so on. So the character gets assassinated. That's what was going on with the people. And Jesus saw that. But Jesus goes on to give another example of their childish criticisms and their character assassinations, this time against himself. In verse 19, he says the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Now, please understand, unlike John the Baptist, who led a very austere, somewhat um, somewhat uh, remote and primitive type of a lifestyle that was a protest against the culture. Jesus lived very differently. He interacted with the society and thus they would say, you know, he came eating and drinking. You see, it's interesting. They loved Jesus for what he could do for them, giving them food, healing their diseases and so on. But they hated him for what he required of them, namely repentance. So telling self-righteous religious people to repent of their sins as Jesus had done. Or was doing as well as John the Baptist is it's like telling a, a, a Harvard professor that teaches evolution to renounce his misguided position and go back to school and learn theology. I mean, it's just not going to go over very well. And likewise, the self-righteous Jews hated having their hypocrisy exposed. And by the way, whenever you have that kind of a reaction, it inevitably proves that indeed the hypocrisy is there. So they used exaggerated slander to assassinate Jesus' character. Behold, in verse 19, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. Now, of course, gluttony and even being a drunk in some ways are somewhat acceptable sins in our culture. And if I can digress for a moment. You want to see gluttony, just go over to where was it we went the other night, Bill, the golden corral or whatever it is. Any of these all you all you can eat places, you will see gluttony. But these were very serious charges against Jesus in that day because gluttony and drunkenness were indications of stubbornness and rebellion. And in fact, in the Mosaic law, in Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21, it describes a, a rebellious son that, that, that's a glutton or any child that's a glutton and or, and, or a drunk. And um, it, was, it was something that was worthy of death, interestingly enough. And by the way, the idea of, of a person being stubborn and rebellious who is a glutton and, and or a drunk is uh, well-documented, just try confronting a glutton or a drunk with their idolatry, with their rebellion, with their stubbornness, and see what kind of reaction you get. But according to the Mosaic law, gluttony and drunkenness was such an evil that it was worthy of stoning. Why so severe? Because gluttony and drunkenness are both forms of rebellion, of, of idolatry, idols of the heart, something that is dominating the life. It would be a both of them would be a uh, self-absorbed obsession with food and or with wine. And we see that it's always rooted in anger and and there's going to be bitterness and laziness, a stubborn refusal to worship and to work attitudes that will ultimately destroy the glutton, the glutton or the drunk. In Proverbs 23, verse 20 we read, do not mix with wine bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Proverbs 23, 20 through 21. In fact, the Hebrew term for glutton is derived from a root word that means worthless. So it's a very serious thing to vilify Jesus as a glutton and a drunkard, a serious charge. That in the Jewish mind would help them to understand that maybe this guy is worthy of death. Maybe he needs to be stoned. So these were very vicious accusations that could not easily be proved or denied. And these, of course, are the most effective, aren't they? Because human nature is naturally going to want to believe the worst about someone. We know from some of the archaeological records, people that have written about Jesus, that Jesus was a rather tall man with uh, what we would call an athletic build. And, uh, of course, all of that would have been concealed by his garments. I mean, he could have, because of the garments that they wore in those days, um, you couldn't really tell if he was a glutton. I mean, he could have peeled back his robe and they could see that there was no obesity there. But it would be hard to accuse a person of that. And really be able to prove or deny it. Likewise, with uh, the accusation that he was a, a drunkard. I mean, after all, he did turn the water into wine, didn't he? You know, and you, you know how people are. They can take anything and begin to distort it. And he also, he's spending time with these gluttons and drunks, you know, the tax gatherers and the prostitutes and all that type of thing. So again, Jesus exposes the lies and the malicious slander of the unbelieving multitude, their childish criticisms, their character assassinations, all feeble attempts to justify their rejection of the truth. The same type of tactics that are used today by those who hate the truth. And friends, think of what a colossal tragedy that was in that day. And even today here before them is the promised king. The one that they had been waiting for. He had performed all these signs and wonders, undeniable miracles. And he lovingly confronts their sin and offers them forgiveness, calls them to repentance, and then desiring to reign over them in righteousness as as the promised kingdom had, had always been indicated. And yet their response is a hideous contempt that he's a glutton and that he's a drunk. I'm reminded of the Lord's words in John 15:25 where we read they hated me without a cause. And you know dear friends, people even in our country still hate the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, "Oh, I don't I don't see a lot of that." Well, no, no I'm not talking about the newly invented Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the one that winks at sin and that is tolerant of all kinds of wickedness, the one that feels very comfortable with sharing the throne with Allah and Muhammad and all of this other stuff. I'm not talking about that Jesus because that Jesus doesn't exist. And so naturally, if you define Jesus in that way, oh, everybody's real tolerant of him. He's just one of the boys. But when you talk about Jesus as our creator, God, as the creator and sustainer of life, as our savior, the one that came once as a lamb, but that will come again as the lion, the one who will judge you for your sin. Now, all of a sudden, that Jesus is the one that everybody hates. And that's what was going on even in that day. And you think, well, how unfair, even as Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. Indeed, it was unfair, but think about it. Jesus was hated right from birth, wasn't he? Herod tried to destroy him, a foretaste of the sufferings that he would someday endure. His friends tried to destroy him when he spoke in the synagogue, even in his own hometown of Nazareth. Remember, they tried to throw him over the cliff. He was hated his entire life. Why? I mean, he he was not some rich nobleman that would somehow provoke people to jealousy. The son of man was homeless, having no place to lay his head. He was not some ruler that was placed over them and and therefore would stir up suspicion and animosity. He was not a hypocrite. No one disputed his sincerity. Why? Why? Why such hatred? He was not a proud man. Demanding and insolent? This was the gentle Savior who washed the disciples' feet, who healed the sick, who fed the hungry. Indeed, as Jesus says here in this text, he was accused of being a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. You know, folks, there we can say guilty as charged. He was a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Now, mind you, they were using this as a derisive accusation, motivated and designed to vilify and destroy Jesus. But instead, in reality, it was a supreme compliment to the Lord because they very accurately described the heart of the Savior. Spurgeon has summarized this in such a way I wanted to share this quote with you. He says, and I quote many a true word, and he's referring to a friend, uh, Jesus being a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. He says many a true word is spoken in jest and many a tribute to virtue has been unwittingly paid by the sinister lips of malice. The enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ thought to brand him with infamy, hold him up to derision and hand his name down to everlasting scorn as a friend of publicans and sinners. Oh, short-sighted mortals. Their scandal published his reputation. To this day, the Savior is adored by the title which was minted as a slur. It was designed to be a stigma that every good man would shudder and shrink from. But it has proved to be a fascination which wins the heart and enchants the soul of all the godly." End quote. Indeed, dear friends, the transformed lives of the ungodly tax gatherers and sinners, those people whom Jesus embraced as a friend, is a testimony to his love and to his mercy. And it dispels any notion that he himself was wicked. That's why Jesus could say at the end of verse 19, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. You know, you ask critics of Christianity, okay, if Christianity is so bad and it's all so phony and Jesus really isn't who he says he was, then may I ask you, how do you explain the radical transformation of lives when people are truly born again? How do you explain that? May I ask you, how do you explain the fact that research has proven that the gospel is the only miracle vaccine against AIDS. Five times more effective than condom distribution. How do you explain that? How do you explain that the divorce rate among two Bible-believing Christians? Now, mind you, Bible-believing Christians as defined by the New Testament, not as defined by contemporary evangelicalism, but that the divorce rate with those people is virtually non-existent. How do you explain that? How do you explain the fact that you don't see Christians practicing immorality? You don't see Christians staggering around drunk. You don't see Christians filling up our jails and 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 peddling dope and addicted to pornography and all. How do you explain that? Well, again, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds and beloved. The world can say what it wants about Christ and those who love him, but the proof is in the pudding. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Well, then, finally, the third strategy that unbelievers use to insulate themselves from the convicting power of the gospel of Christ a third strategy that they will use to fortify their position of unbelief is found beginning in verse 20. And it's that of a granite indifference. Verse 20, then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And he goes on in verse 23 and talks about another city, Capernaum. The people today call it Capernaum. It means the house of Nahum. We think Nahum the prophet came from there. But Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were three cities that were very close together on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And most of Jesus' ministry occurred within that small area. It would be an area similar to, shall we say, what, Springfield and Madison and Goodlettsville. Maybe even a little bit closer than those three places. Capernaum was really the headquarters of Jesus. A thriving fishing village where Jesus, you will recall, raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He healed the nobleman's son. It was in this area where he delivered demons from the demoniacs where he healed Peter's mother-in-law with her hemorrhage. He healed two blind men there that we're aware of. The centurion's servant, the paralytic. Remember, the friends lowered him through the roof. That happened there in Capernaum. And many other miracles that aren't even recorded. You see, these three cities, dear friends, were recipients of enormous blessings. The living God had condescended to come and to reside amongst them and to manifest His glory through these signs and wonders. And what was their response? Repentance? Mass conversion? Humble worship and adoration and praise? No. (laughs) Granite indifference. They were too blinded by their own self-righteousness to see the truth of who Jesus was. They were too convinced of their own goodness. They really saw no need to change. Oh, they they, they were amused with Jesus and at times even amazed with Jesus, but they saw him more as an entertainer and maybe as some new teacher than as their Savior and Lord. The supernatural works of Jesus should have driven them to their faces in worship, and instead they simply brushed him off. How can people do that? How do people continue to do that even in our country? Simple. People become so in love with the world. They become so in love even with their families and in our country with the American dream, whatever that is. They're so enamored with their own religious traditions and their own self-justifying theology that their consciences become seared making them insensitive to both the seriousness and the consequences of sin. I see this all the time, even in our community, and sometimes even in this church. And it grieves my heart. Where we see mostly religious people, for example, in our community, living under the delusion that somehow they've been reconciled to God because of any number of reasons, certain rituals or certain things that they have done in the past, But in reality, their lives are ones that are lived in total indifference to Christ. You see, no real love for Christ in their life. They are the Lord of their lives, not Christ. They live for their own glory, not Christ's glory. And they are utterly indifferent to the true gospel of Christ, content instead with the superficial churchianity that is indicative of apostate Christianity in our culture. Dear friends, please hear me. If this shoe is fitting you and you must wear it, please know that you may be indifferent to Christ, but he is not indifferent to you. Dear friend, you may disregard his glorious power you may disregard, even as these multitudes did, his holy admonitions. You may write him off. You may not even want his saving grace. But your indifference, dear friends, infuriates him. You see, he will judge you, the Bible teaches, and we're going to see this in a moment, with a more severe judgment than those who have rejected him with less enlightenment. Notice in verse 21, towards the end, it says, for if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in Cycloth cloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, friends, this was a colossal insult to the Jews. You see, Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities that were notorious For every imaginable form of wickedness, they were seaport cities. They would be now up in the the area of Lebanon, up in the northern side there of, uh, of Israel. They were seaport cities that had been originally settled by the Phoenicians, a very wicked people. Cities filled with greed and violence and immorality. They were even heavily involved in the unimaginable atrocities that was concomitant with Baal worship. And Tyre was so wicked that it would even trade God's covenant people in slavery. It was so corrupt that God finally destroyed it. You see, these were heathen people of the worst sort. And yet Jesus is accusing the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida of being even worse. He is saying, in fact, you have exceeded their wickedness with your Self-righteous indifference. Had they they been given the same privilege as you, had they seen all that you have seen and heard all that you have heard, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, verse 22, I say to you it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. If I can digress for a moment because this is important. It's fascinating here. We have some insight here into the issue of Degrees of punishment in hell. People ask me about that from time to time, and this is one of the key passages, and there are some others. I'll mention a few. But first of all, dear friends, understand the divine principle. The greater the light of truth, the greater responsibility to respond to it. And also, the corollary of this is the greater the light rejected, the greater the judgment you see, these privileged Jews witnessed the glory of Christ, yet remained indifferent to him. And because of this, they will suffer greater punishment than those pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon that never had the same, that same level of divine revelation. By the way, this same principle is taught in Luke 12, verses 42 through 48 where Jesus contrasts the faithful versus the unfaithful servants. We won't go there, but you might want to look that up later. And in that text, Jesus distinguishes punishments of many blows versus few blows determined by the degree of knowledge the unfaithful servants had concerning their master's will. Now, to bring this home, dear friends, for those of you who perhaps frequent this church, yet refuse to submit to Christ in humble faith and obedience. Please know that the greater the light you reject in your hypocrisy, the greater the judgment, the greater your suffering in hell. Now, some will say, oh, come on, there's no such thing as hell. Oh, really? Then you explain this text to me and many others. I know many people believe in annihilation, many, many, and it's growing where people don't really go to hell. After all, God is a God of love and he would never do such a hideous thing. His holiness is really not all that holy. And, you know, people are going to sin and, you know, what they miss out on is heaven. But when they die, they don't go to hell. I mean, they just cease to exist. Dear friends, how I wish that were so. You know, without any f- conscious fear of eternal torment in the hands of a living God, I could relax knowing that sinners need only survive this life because, you know, when this is life, when this life is over, all that's going to happen is Pfft, and you're gone. Well, I could really relax in that. But dear friend, that's not what the Bible teaches. Hell is indeed an unfathomable mystery, but so too is the holiness of God and the justice of God and every other great doctrine in the Bible. So may I warn you, do not exalt reason above the word of God, because scripture alone must be our spiritual authority, not the puny musings of man. Do not trifle with the truth. Never stand in judgment of the word of God, but rather bow before it in humble obedience let me say this, because God is holy, every sin must be punished. We read this all through the scripture. His justice must be satisfied. And that justice can either be satisfied by the payment of Christ on the, on the cross, where he was the propitiation or the appeasement, appeasement of our sins, or man can choose to satisfy the justice of God in an eternity in hell. Those are the two choices. So be warned, those of you who reject Christ in the face of full light, your fate will be worse than those who have rejected him from a distance. As Paul warned in Romans 2, 5, speaking to hypocrites, he says, You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Well, as our time is slipping away, notice that Jesus gives the same warning to the law abiding, morally upright, yet self-righteous people in Capernaum in verses 23 through 24. There he compares them to Sodom and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted in heaven, will you? But you shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you. It would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And again, more insult, adding insult to injury to the people. You see, the land of Sodom, as you probably remember, epitomized sexual immorality. It was legendary for its homosexuality and its bestiality. And again, dear friends, the point that Jesus is making here is very simple. Indifference To the privilege of witnessing and knowing divine revelation is a supreme insult to the holiness of God. I don't know how to say it any more simply. And anyone who just merely blows off Christianity in light of full knowledge is storing up wrath for themselves. The wrath of God that will be revealed in the day of his judgment. Now, what about you? Let's bring it home. May I ask you to search your heart for a moment? Where is it that you resent the word of God and you reject the light of his truth? Where do you simply ignore the penetrating light of truth upon your conscience and stubbornly refuse to do your own thing? Are you like the multitudes, perhaps, that Jesus rebuked because of their rigid Unbelief, their childish criticism. Are you like them? Like a selfish child that cannot be pleased. Life is all about you. You're utterly self-absorbed and you're going to complain about anything the preacher says, anything that the Bible says, anything that the church does. Is that going to be you or, or maybe are you a little bit more like those that like to assassinate character where you malign anyone who tells you something you don't want to hear? I hear this all the time. I don't want to go to church. It's full of a bunch of hypocrites. Well, yeah, so you ought to feel right at home. Come on in. You hear that all the time, don't you? And it's sad that that's far too true than it should be. Or are you like those with the granite indifference where life is all about you? You're simply committed to too committed to your own agenda to pay attention to the Lord's labor of love in your life? And despite the miraculous displays of His glory and His grace down through history and all that is revealed in in Scripture, despite the undeniable proofs of His deity and His love for you, you're just going to remain unmoved? Oh, dear sinner, it is the wisdom of hell That despises such grace. And may I ask you. As a minister of the gospel. Won't you set aside your pride. And kneel at the cross. And come before the Lord. And confess your guilt. Won't you look up and see the Savior's blood. Dripping down on your behalf. Being spilt for you. And then behold the empty tomb. A promise of what can be yours. And may I. Just cry out to you that today you embrace Jesus as Savior lest you die in your unbelief and now because of even what you have heard today now having even more light place yourself in a position where your suffering will be greater than it would have been before this service started. May my blessed Master summon you to His Son today, for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father, these are solemn words that You have communicated to us today through Scripture. And I pray that Your Holy Spirit would cause them to find such a place in our hearts that they cannot be rooted out by error or by any other thing. But Lord, I pray that we will live consistently with them and recognize the need to continue to present the glorious truths of the gospel even to those who will respond to it in childish criticism. Sometimes they will try to assassinate our character even as they did you. And then, Lord, many will be filled with granted indifference. As you have warned, that in the days before you come back, it will be like in the days of Noah where people will be eating and drinking and giving in marriage. They'll be living life as normal, utterly indifferent to impending judgment. Lord, I pray that we will do all that we can to help a lost and dying world see the need for the Savior. And by Your grace, Lord, will You save many for Your glory. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to Pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615 746 0113.